Well, in this Advent series, we have been exploring the, the complete journey that surrounds Jesus' arrival uh, on, the, on the earth in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. When we reduce Christ, uh, Christmas to a single event that took place 2,000 years ago in a very specific place, um, we really miss the bigger story of Christmas. And what we've been trying to do is to help you to understand that bigger story. At the beginning of this series, I brought a message on preparation, and I reminded us that uh, Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus was not God's plan B. Jesus was God's plan A from the very beginning. In the very third chapter of Genesis, right after sin had come into the world and, and brought darkness into God's creation, right there in the very beginning in the third chapter, God said to the serpent, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And right there, he was letting the enemy know that this is not the end of the story. And for the next thousands of years, God was preparing the way for Jesus to come and to restore what was lost in the garden. That's preparation. We've also talked about anticipation. That for, for thousands of years, God began to reveal his ultimate plan to the people of Israel. It would be through them that God would bring the Messiah. And God began to give them hints about what was to come. Uh, through the law and through the sacrificial system and through the prophets, God began to tell them what was coming. And so Derek talked uh, two weeks ago about anticipation and uh, what it means to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. He talked about how the people of Israel had to, to hope and to stand in hope and to wait in faith for God to, uh, to fulfill the promises that he had made. And then last week, um, Pastor Mike talked to us about the arrival itself. Finally, in a small village five miles from Jerusalem, Jesus arrived. Uh, Pastor Mike explored the, uh, the wonder of his arrival through the eyes and experience of the shepherds. Now, as for me, I'm going to avoid talking about shepherds altogether. Now, if you were here last week, you know why. Uh, if you are not, then just ask somebody that was here and they will tell you. But it can be a dangerous thing to talk about shepherds and sheep stuff. So I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to avoid that altogether. Um, but it is a wonderful and moving thing, isn't it, that God chose to reveal himself to those who were considered the lowest of those who lived at the time. Uh, people that were despised, that, that were rejected by men, that those are the people that God chose to reveal himself to first on that day of revival. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at response, and we're going to dig into Matthew 2, uh, 1 through 12, and look at four different responses to Jesus' arrival. But there's another message coming, so next week uh, we will have a message on expectation. Pastor Nick will bring that message, and we will be challenged to remember that Jesus' first revival, uh, arrival is just the first of, of two arrivals. So there is a, another arrival still to come. 
And so at Christmas, we're reminded that, uh, that even as the people of Israel were anticipating his first arrival, we are to live every day in expectation of his ultimate arrival when he comes at the end of time to bring about God's fulfillment. So as we think today about response, um, I, I want to start with a question. Has anyone here ever had... Uh, someone really famous come to your house. And I'm not talking about you bumped into them in public or you went to some special event where they just happened to be and you were there at the same time. I'm talking about coming to your house. And I'm talking about somebody really famous, somebody that uh, essentially anybody in America would recognize or know. Has anybody, anybody ever had somebody really, really famous come to your house? Okay, not that you're willing to admit anyway, right? Um, well, let me, let me tell you, the closest that I have come uh, is something that happened about 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, actually. Uh, now, this person didn't actually come to our house. They came to my grandparents' house. But my grandparents lived essentially right next door, and I was there when it happened, so I think this counts. Um, I, I have to confess that they didn't come to see me or anybody in my immediate family. Uh, they came to see my first cousin, Rachel. Uh, Rachel was, um, but, but here's the thing, Rachel was with us, and I got to experience it because I was with Rachel, right? So uh, the, the person that I'm talking about is, uh, is Amy Carter, uh, the daughter of President Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. My first cousin, Rachel, was a very close personal friend of Amy. Uh, they went to college together up at Brown University. Uh, Rachel was in her wedding. Uh, they did a little jail time together. Um, this, it's a long story, but uh, uh, there were 15 or 20 Brown University students that were uh, doing some civil disobedience against the uh, CIA. My cousin was one of those, along with Amy Carter, and they were all thrown in jail together. So uh, there's that experience. Um, and so, you know, she, she, uh, they, they had this close relationship. Well, every year... Rachel and her family, Rachel was from Boston, or is from Boston, and um, they love to come south for Christmas. I mean, the south is a better place to be at Christmas time than Boston. So every year, her family would come south at Christmas time. Well, back in the mid-80s, one year when they were down, Amy invited her to come up and spend a few days with the Carters at Plains. And so Amy went up and, and spent that time with uh, the Carters there in Plains. And on the day that she was to come back, word began to circulate around the house that Amy was going to come with her and that she would actually be there for a few hours. Well, when they finally arrived, they finally got uh, to the house, uh, Rachel came through the front door, followed by Amy. They went right by my grandfather, who was sitting in his recliner, which was literally right by the front door. They walked through the living room, didn't speak to a soul, and she tracked mud all the way across the carpet. My grandfather took notice of the mud and then muttered to not so much to himself, but loud enough for everybody to hear. I don't care if she is the president's daughter. She can still wipe off her feet before she comes into my house. 
So that's, that's as good as it gets with the Coward family. I mean, that's all, that's all I've got for you. Um, that's the closest we've ever come to, uh, uh, to, to real fame. It, it, well, it wasn't even in our house, and she didn't come to see us, but in my grandparents' house 30 years ago. Well, all of that to say this. When, when someone comes to your house, the way you respond to that person will be determined to some degree by the identity of the person, him or herself, right? Uh, I mean, let's just say a stranger comes to your house. Well, if a stranger comes to your house, you might respond with indifference or you might respond with fear. Uh, If a salesperson or a solicitor comes to your house, you might respond with irritation or, or you might not respond at all. You may just blow them off, you know, turn the TV down, get quiet. And just wait for him to leave. Uh, we've all done it, right? Uh, I certainly have. Um, if the person who comes to your house um, is a friend, though, you're going to respond to that person warmly and with hospitality. Um, if the person who comes to your house is a loved one who has been away for a very, very long time, you might respond with tears of joy. Who the person is... It's going to have some effect on how you respond. If a very famous person were to show up at your house, you you might just lose it. You ever seen somebody just suddenly realize they were in the presence of someone famous and they just kind of lost it, started laughing uncontrollably or babbling unintelligibly? Uh, Maybe that's how you'd respond. But who the person is has some effect on how we respond. Um, At the same time, There's another factor that will determine the way you respond. And quite frankly, this one is probably even more powerful than who the person is. And that is your perception of who that person is. Your perception of who that person is. I mean, for example, let's say a really, really famous person were to come to my house, but I'm the only person on the block who doesn't know about them, who doesn't know who they are. Well, if they come to my house, I might treat them like a stranger. But if they go to my neighbor's house, who knows all about them, they're going to be treated like royalty, right? So my perception of them affects the way I receive them. Now, uh, now, maybe I do know about them, but maybe my opinion of them is completely different than that of my neighbor. My neighbor loves them, and I can't stand them. If they come to my house, they're going to get a very different response than the one they would get if they go to my neighbor's house, right? So in the end, the way we respond to someone's arrival has something to do with who they are, but also with our perception of who they are. I think that explains or helps us to understand why when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, The king of kings, the savior of the world, arrived in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. There were very different responses to his coming. I want you to keep all that in your mind and and be aware of that as we read together Matthew 12, 1 and 2. You can follow along on the overhead if you don't have your Bible, but if you want to turn, we're in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now let's start here. I'm not going to do this exactly in order, but let's start with the response of Herod. The Herod that is mentioned here in Matthew 2 uh, is the same Herod that has, been come, has come to be called Herod the Great. There were a number of different Herods, but this was Herod the Great. He was the king of Judah when Israel was under Roman occupation at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, Herod was half Jew, but his loyalty was first and foremost not to Jerusalem or to, the Israel, uh, to Israel, but to Rome. He was very clearly um, there to, to keep the peace for Rome in Israel. Now, the reason he was called great, well, I mean, it's probably a number of reasons, but one of them is that uh, he really, he, he was someone who had unlimited ambition and quite frankly, genius when it came to architecture and great building projects. I mean, it was Herod who rebuilt the temple and made it even bigger and more glorious than Solomon's. Uh, he built Antonia Fortress, which uh, still stands parts of it in Jerusalem today. Um, from uh, Masada in the south to Caesarea Philippi in the north, Herod left his fingerprints all over Jerusalem, and if you, I mean, all over Israel. And if you go there today and you take a tour of the Holy Land sites, you will hear his name again and again and again. Because most of the, the buildings that were built during the golden age of Israel uh, were projects of Herod. Uh, and they're still marveled at today. I mean, so that's one of the reasons he was called great. He was also great because he was able to both keep uh, Rome and the people of Israel relatively happy for more than 40 years. Now, we still know how hard that is even today. I mean, it's, a, it's tough to keep the peace in the Middle East, right? Well, Herod managed to keep things relatively peaceful for almost 40 years. But at the same time, Herod was 
a man who notoriously battled depression and paranoia on a scale that was even greater than the buildings he built. Uh, Herod was terrified of losing his throne to someone else. He didn't trust anyone. Herod, Herod was married nine times in order to create allegiances with people that he thought might come against him. Herod murdered his wife, one of his wives, uh, three of his sons. Uh, the Roman Emperor Augustus once famously said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. I mean, Herod was a ruthless man who destroyed anyone or anything that got in his way or threatened his power. Uh, this is who he was. So uh, when, when Herod heard through the grapevine that there were people from the east, astrologers, who had come to Jerusalem searching for a ruler who had been born, well, Herod responds exactly the way you would have expected him to respond. Herod determined that he would crush any possibility of a rival that had been born in Bethlehem. So he finds out from uh, the Magi where the child was. He finds out from the leaders of Israel that this is, in fact, where the Messiah is expected to be born. And then he passes a decree that every male child under two years of age would be destroyed in order to wipe out any threat that may have existed against him. Now, to be sure, um, Herod's response to Jesus' arrival was one of violent opposition. Uh, and, and we could go down that route. I mean, we could go down that road today and say, yes, there are people today who are still violently opposed to Jesus. Um, and, and perhaps there are some, there may be someone here today who uh, in your heart of hearts is, is opposed to Jesus in a fairly hostile way. Maybe, maybe for any number of reasons, uh, you've just developed a distaste for Jesus. But I suspect that most of us here can't really identify directly with Herod in terms of his violent opposition to Jesus. But before we move on from Herod, I would suggest there may be something in him that we should consider about our own lives. And that's this. Ultimately, Jesus was a threat to Herod because Herod understood that if there was another ruler, he would have to give up his right to reign. And at the end of the day, there are many who have missed Jesus simply because they're unwilling to give up the right to reign their own lives in order to come under his lordship. So in the same way that Herod was uh, distracted by or, or, or blinded by a lust for power, we too can miss seeing Jesus for who he really is because we're simply unwilling to give up the right to reign in our own lives. Uh, that's the response of, of, of Herod. And that's the response of anyone who essentially says, I don't want anyone or anything else to rule over me. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. I want to be the God of my own life. Now, Matthew tells us that Herod was not the only one who was disturbed by the coming of Jesus, by the arrival of Jesus. He says, Herod and all Jerusalem was disturbed. Now, all Jerusalem is simply the everyday, ordinary citizens of Jerusalem. 
And, and you might ask the question, well, why was all Jerusalem disturbed? I mean, I think it's safe to say that the average, everyday, ordinary citizen was not threatened by Jesus' power uh, because they had none. I mean, the, uh, the ordinary citizen in Jerusalem had no power. So that wasn't a threat to them. I, I think when you, when you think about it, the thing that was threatening to them was not so much the, the fear of the loss of power, but simply that their lives would be disrupted. Now, for sure, without question, um, living in those days for those who worked directly under Herod was anything but comfortable. I mean, these were people who lived in constant fear of what Herod was going to do next. Their lives weren't comfortable at all. But for the everyday, ordinary citizen of Jerusalem, life under Herod was pretty good. I mean, they, they got to enjoy all the buildings. They got to enjoy the prosperity. This was a time of genuine prosperity in Israel. They got to enjoy the peace uh, that Rome provided for them as long as everything was kept according to Rome's demands. And Herod did all this for them. So for the people of Israel, uh, the, the citizens of, of Jerusalem, life was good. And what Jesus did above all else was threaten to disrupt the comfort of their lives. I mean, uh, another ruler rising up uh, could well mean trouble. Another ruler meant there was going to be a battle between Herod and this ruler. Another ruler meant things, things with Rome may get upset. We may lose the prosperity we have. We may lose the ease and comfort of life in Jerusalem at that time. And again, I, I want to say that uh, there's, a, there's a strong association with all Jerusalem and many today. It's not so much that most people feel threatened by Jesus. Uh, these folks may not be hostile toward him. They may even think highly of him. Uh, they, may, they may have great respect for him. But at the end of the day, they fear having their lives disrupted. We talked about this just this week in man school and how, how strongly we cling to comfortable life, to life that's easy, predictable, manageable. And deep down, we all know that if Jesus becomes Lord, it could disrupt my life. It could mean that he pulls me out of my comfort zone. It could mean that he calls me into a new place that, that is, is unfamiliar, unknown. And all of these are things that are just simply disruptive. And so for all Jerusalem, uh, most of them miss Jesus simply because they weren't prepared for someone who might disrupt their lives. And then there are the religious leaders. Uh, their response is the most surprising and without question the most tragic of all. Uh, the religious leaders are... Are, are, were not evil like Herod, and, and they weren't afraid of discomfort. They embraced a lifestyle that was very demanding, that was, was very uncomfortable, could be very difficult. So they weren't like Herod, and they weren't like all Jerusalem. I mean, these were, uh, these were good and decent men who had devoted their entire lives to knowing and keeping God's word. I want to emphasize it because it's not just that they knew God's word but did their own thing. 
They knew God's word and did everything in their power to keep it down to the letter. That's who the scribes and the Pharisees were. Uh, they, they loved God. They loved God's word. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Uh, they knew every prophecy, every word that had ever been spoken about the coming Messiah. Uh, in fact, that's why Herod called them in when he heard the rumors about the Magi to ask them, is this correct? Is it true that your word tells you that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem? And their response to him is, yes, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then he was there five miles away, and they still missed him. They had been waiting for 400 years in which there had been no word from God whatsoever. And finally the day arrived when Jesus, the Son of God, was there, right in their front door, at their front door, and yet they still missed him. You see, that's the problem with religion. Uh, I once heard religion defined as man's attempts to reach God. Religion is man's attempts to reach God. Every religion on the face of the earth is, is basically built around the notion that there are certain things that we must do in order to be acceptable to God. And so religion puts all of the emphasis on my work, what I must do to get to God. The outrageous claim of Christianity is that there is nothing you or I can do to get to God. But the wonder of the message of Christianity is that God has done everything to come to us. The message of Christianity, the message of Christmas is that God has come to us. God came from heaven to earth in order to meet us on our own territory. I just need to say this morning that uh, every attempt to make our own way to God is destined to fail. Uh, Christianity is not about doing everything in my power to get to God. It's about humbly acknowledging the impossibility of such a thing and the willingness to humble myself to receive that which can only be received by grace. To humble myself to acknowledge it's not what I bring to the table, it's what I receive from him who has paid it all, who has done it all. Uh, this, is, this is the story of the religious leaders. But sadly, there are multitudes even today who end up missing the Messiah even though he comes to the very door of their soul. They miss him because they're too consumed with their own efforts to be good, to be righteous, to be holy. And then there's the Magi. The Magi are the key players in this story today. It's the Magi who... Surprisingly, give us the story of the appropriate response. I say surprising because these were not men who studied the good book, they studied the stars. They were astrologers. They were not 
Jews. They were not, they were pagans. I mean, they, they worshiped the stars. They studied the stars. I mean, this is what they were now. There are all kinds of misperceptions about the Magi. I mean, first of all, uh, we have no idea exactly where they came from, but I can tell you they probably didn't come from as far east. We know they came from the east, but probably not as far as you think. Uh, they were not likely Chinese or Oriental or, or even Indian. Uh, they were probably from Iraq or Iran. That's almost certainly where they came from. And, and I hate to burst your bubble. And if, if this makes you have to go home and, and put away all your nativity scenes, uh, there probably weren't just three of them. I mean, uh, why we think there were three is simply determined by the fact that three different kinds of gifts were given. But nowhere in the Bible does it say there were three men who came. It just says there were wise men who came from the east. And some of you may have even learned their names at some point in, in some kind of Sunday school class. We have no idea what their names were. That's all tradition. We don't know who these men were, but we do know they came. And here's the thing. They were pagans, and as I said, they had devoted their entire lives to studying the stars. But here's what's absolutely uh, wonderful about this, this part of the story. They were looking for truth. They were looking for truth in the stars, yes, but they were looking for truth. And the incredible thing about God is that he came to them right where they were and revealed himself to them in the very way in which they were seeking it. He spoke to them through the stars. And it's their response that gives us the right response to Jesus. First of all, they responded in obedience. When God revealed himself to them, that didn't just become information to be tucked away in the back of their minds. They responded with obedience. They packed up their stuff. They left their home. They got on camels, which if you've ever been on a camel is not a, a, a fun experience. And they got on camels and they went across a very, very dangerous and hard road in order to, get, to respond to the word that God had given them. They didn't just hear the word. They, they were doers of it. They responded obediently. And secondly, they bowed down to him. They acknowledged his worth. They acknowledged his authority. They called him the king of the Jews. They understood that it was not their efforts, but his worth that was the focus of this story. And so they worshipped him for who he was. Second, thirdly, they brought him gifts. Uh, and these were not gifts that were meant to curry favor or to gain something in the future. It was not meant to, to establish an alliance with Jesus. They were gifts that grew out of the heart of one who understood that this one who has arrived is worthy of my very best. And so they brought their very best to the feet of the baby Messiah, and they left them there. I mean, the gifts themselves are symbolic. There's no question about that. The gold is, is a symbol of kingship. Um, the frankincense is a, a symbol of priestly, uh, the priestly work. And myrrh is a spice that is used for embalming a body after death for burial. And so each of these gifts reflects something about who Jesus would become. He would be a king, but he would also be a priest standing between holy God and sinful man. And ultimately, he would give his life to pay for the sins of the whole world. 
So in the bringing of these gifts, we see something of the nature of Jesus himself. But above all, they worshipped him. Their response was worship. Which, to me, is also interesting because when you look at the shepherds, the thing that Mike did say about the shepherds last week that was powerful is that when the shepherds came, their first response was worship. And can you see in this big picture that that's a, there's a pattern there? That those who resisted Jesus or those who simply kept him at arm's length or for those who were so consumed with their own efforts that they couldn't come near him, all of those were those who missed him. But to those who chose to come into his presence and let God reveal him to be who he actually is, for all of those, the only appropriate response was to bow down and worship. To bow down and worship. Can I just remind us that Jesus was the same for each group of people? It's not like he was different, a different person to each group. He was the same to all four groups. At the end, it was their perception of him and their perception of themselves that robbed them of the opportunity to know Jesus as, as Lord and as Savior. I, I just want to ask you this morning as we come to a close. We started with a question. Uh, let me end with a question as well. What is your response to Jesus right now? What has been your response? What is your response today? Again, there may be some who uh, have had a hard time with Jesus. And maybe that's because, quite frankly, Christians have given you a, a, a misperception of who he really is. People that you think are Christians, at least, have, 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 have caused you to see Jesus in a way that does not reflect at all who he actually is. My prayer for you today is that you would have a genuine revelation from the heart of God himself as to who he truly is. As one who is not against you, but one who is for you. As one who loves you more than you can imagine. Let me say that I suspect that there may be many of us here today who might identify with all Jerusalem or with the religious leaders whether it's being consumed with our own comfort, whether it's being in control of our own destiny, whether it's simply not willing to give up the right to reign over my own life. The tragedy is that we might miss the one who is life itself. That we might miss the one who is the only one who can bring life that is truly life. I want to ask this morning if you would be willing to open your heart and say, Lord Jesus, help me to see you as you really are. Uh, take away all my misperceptions. Take away all my preconceived ideas. Help me to see you today as you really are. And I want you to know that he is here. He's ready to meet you right where you are. And I want to ask you again, uh, just to bow your heads for a moment. Right where you are, just bow your heads for a moment. And I wonder if there's anyone who is here this morning that would say, uh, Pastor, I want you to pray for me right now because I'm in one of those other categories. 
I'm not in the category of the, the Magi. But maybe I'm where Herod was, or I'm where Jerusalem was, or I'm where the religious leaders were, but that's where I am. And I want you to pray that right now I might follow the path of the Magi and embrace Jesus as Lord. Is there anyone here this morning? Would you just raise your hand right where you are? Just raise your hand. And I want to pray for you. Father, again, I thank you that you know every heart. And Lord, I pray that even as we sit here together in this place, that you would show up. Lord, we welcome your presence. Lord, the desire of our heart is not simply to go through a service. We want an encounter with you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would move on every heart. And for those ones who have just acknowledged, yes, I want to know him as he truly is. Particularly for those who've never made that decision before. Can I just invite you right now, if you've never prayed to accept Jesus Christ as Lord, would you just pray after me in your own heart right now? Father, I confess that I need your grace. I've tried to fix my life myself. I've tried to make my own way. But it didn't work and I can't do it. And so today I confess my sins. And I want to receive by grace the gift of salvation that was won through your son Jesus Christ. When he came not only to be born in a manger, but to be crucified on a cross. The one who gave his life that I might live. And right now, I surrender my life to you. And I ask you to be Lord of my life. I die to the right to reign over my own life. And I'm going to trust you to be Lord over my life in every way. I receive you today as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Now, I want to invite all of us just to stand. As I said, the, um, the most appropriate response to coming near to Jesus is worship. And so for many of you, you may just need to sing as the worship team leads us this morning. Just sing or pray or just begin to worship God right where you are. If there is anyone who needs prayer this morning, I want to invite the prayer team to come and to be up front and be ready. And if there's anyone this morning that needs prayer, would you just come? Whatever your need may be, if it's for healing, if it's for forgiveness, if it's for salvation, whatever your need may be, if you want someone to pray with you, just come directly to one of these who are here. And they would love to pray with you this morning. If you just want to come and kneel at these altars and just have a moment of prayer time with the Lord alone, that's okay too. Just come and kneel. But let's respond to Him this morning. Let's worship Him together.